Welcome back to the Nat Alliance Now podcast and to the final installment of our contractor series. Jay, Kathy, and Alan have done a great job on all of these episodes, but they've only started to scratch the surface of everything that's covered in the National Alliance Contractors Pro Focus series. So be sure to check that out on our website and enjoy the episode. Well, welcome back, everybody. I'm Jay Williams here with you again, and I have Kathy Trishan and Alan Messer with me one more time. And uh, we have been discussing some issues related to contracting risks and getting you all pumped up and excited for the Contractor Pro Focus coming up on December 16th and 17th. So today, we're going to be talking about property exposures related to contracting risks. So, Alan, in our last episode, we were talking again about the AIA contract and its impact on liability coverage. Talk about how that contract impacts property coverage. Well, most construction contracts, and particularly the AIA document, has some requirements, contract requirements for both uh, liability coverages and property coverages. The agent, in my opinion, wants to review that contract because that contract is, first of all, likely to say who will provide uh, the builder's risk, who will provide the installation floater uh, if it's not going to require builder's risk. And then it will describe whose interest should be covered under those policies as well as perils that should be included, uh, are some limits for perils permitted. One of the things, uh, a common mistake that I have seen as an example, is that the, the contract will not permit or, or does not discuss sublimits, but yet when the coverage is written, I, I find a sublimit on earthquake uh, and or flood that is contrary to the contract requirement. So I begin with a little checklist where I go through and start looking at who's to provide the coverage, what coverages are to be provided, how are we best going to describe the project. Uh, there are all sorts of errors because when coverage begins to be written, it needs to be written as closely as possible in compliance with the contract requirements. And fortunately, sometimes those contract requirements are not read until after the contract is signed. And so now we are trying to comply with something that may be at least difficult, if not impossible, to do. Kathy, has that been your experience as well? It has, Alan, and I would suggest also not limiting our review to the construction contract. There might be other contracts in play. If you have a project owner who has taken on finance partners or there are some lender requirements, I find that very often they can be extremely particular about what the insurance is supposed to look like. And if I don't find out until after the fact that this is what I need to satisfy these requirements as best I can, there are going to be some issues there. So, Alan, you, you mentioned builder's risk. So let's start off talking about builder's risk. 
when, when an agent writes a builder's risk coverage, there they have a couple options. They have the you know the commercial property you know program has a builder's risk form in it, and there's also inland marine. Talk about why the inland marine form might be better suited than the commercial property form. Uh, all right. Well, first of all, Jay, just let me make one comment. Uh, in my opinion, ISO should have withdrawn uh, the builder's risk coverage form uh, years ago because, in, in my opinion, a filed form does not provide the flexibility that we need to address uh, the exposures with the proper coverages. And when we look at writing builder's risk under commercial inland marine, uh, we have non-filed forms that provide much greater flexibility that if we have an underwriter willing to do so, we can better tailor the coverage to meet the exposures. But all of these, while we talk about commercial inland marine forms, I would not want the agent to think all of them are created equal. Uh, I'm sure, I know I have stories, and I'm sure Kathy could tell you a number of stories as well, where we've encountered forms that were quote-unquote commercial inland marine forms that still did not properly protect our clients. There are certain key areas that I'm hot on. One of those is like site work. Uh, another one that I commonly see with some of these forms is an exclusion under property not covered for trees, shrubs, and plants. Uh, Kathy, what, what would you like to add in that particular, in any of these areas? I agree with you about the ISO builder's risk form. I worry too about situations where perhaps we have a renovation project and an insured is relying on not even something that purports to be a builder's risk form, something that is truly a commercial property form. So not only do we have the issues with things like site work and no coverage for foundations, we think there about the limited perils and the limited coverage for off-premises and limited coverage for in-transit, limited named insureds, where that property form is not the best solution. And as you mentioned, when we're working in the inland marine world, we have a flexibility there that we just don't have in the property world to make the policy work as best we can to meet those requirements of the project and of the contracts, much better solution. So in the inland marine world, and when we're thinking about builder's risk, we often talk about this term soft costs. So what are soft costs and why is that coverage important when it comes to builder's risk? Kathy, can you start on that one? The first part of our builder's risk policy, our hard cost coverage, that pays to fix the damage, fix the building, fix the structure, perhaps fix the temporary works that we're insuring there. The soft cost coverage, that really comes into play when we've got a delay in completion because of a covered peril. We have lots of delays in completion these days having nothing to do with damage to the property. But if we've got damage to the property by a covered cause of loss, Think about all of the additional expenses that an insured is going to incur because of that delay 
that are unrelated to the repair of the damage or the replacement of the property. Things like extending leases on equipment and office space, maybe extending security. They might have to refinance a construction loan or incur at least additional interest on a construction loan. They're going to have to pay the attorney more. They're going to have to pay the accountant more. They're going to have to pay me more because now I need to extend all of their insurance coverages. So insurance premiums is another one of these soft costs. And I think that sometimes that gets forgotten. And I see a lot of carriers now, including in their builder's risk forms, a very small amount of coverage for soft cost, which is in some ways, you could say, better than having no coverage at all. But we still need to have this conversation with our insureds about what they need dollars for and how many dollars they need for that. And I, I, I would add that we have to look at a couple of other things. Sometimes we might be tempted to add these soft costs by endorsement to the builder's risk policy. And sometimes we might want to look at standalone coverage, depending upon who has the exposures. As Kathy has mentioned, some of these exposures, some of them are more contractor-centric, some of them are more owner-centric, and, and some of them apply to both. But one of the other things that I think we have to be very careful about is what triggers coverage. Because as Kathy mentioned, this is a delay. And so some of these expenses would never even come into play until the original expected completion date. And are we going to wait until that expected completion date, and that is the date that triggers coverage, versus some of the costs we're going to need much sooner? If we have to have architects and engineers involved, and we've had a loss to our covered property, it's not likely that we want to wait until the expected completion date to trigger coverage for those increased costs and architectural and engineering fees. We also have to look at would a civil authority trigger soft cost coverage, an act of civil authority. Many of the soft cost provisions that I have read are not triggered by civil authority. Uh, would uh, ordinance or law, we talk about ordinance or law when we're writing coverage on the hard cost side. Uh, what about ordinance or law and the increase and delay uh, on the soft cost side? Also, in addition to soft costs, we could have a loss of business income that might result from our delay as well. Kathy, what's been your experience in looking at what triggers coverage? My experience is exactly as you described it, Alan, and I think that that is one of the big problems with the way that this soft cost coverage or this delaying completion coverage is written, that we don't even think about paying until the delay has already started, which is that projected completion date of the project. And then we likely have a waiting period of some sort in addition. So to use your architects and engineers fees as an example, I can't wait until my project completion date has passed to pay the architect or the engineer. So when an agent properly understands that coverage trigger for soft costs, then they know to make sure we've got some coverage for those things on the hard cost side of the policy so that as best we can, 
we can have some of those costs paid over there. And every form that I have looked at to date, with the exception of one, has that trigger starting on that projected date of completion. And that's a common misunderstanding there. It's not like extra expense coverage, where we start paying as soon as we have the damage. So thinking about the Inland Marine form, and to me it's sounding like that's probably the best form to use when writing builder's risk. I, I would think we have a lot more flexibility, so it would be the best form. Is, there, is, is coinsurance an issue, Alan? <laughs> well, you know, is it an issue with me? Is it an issue with the insured? Is it an issue with the agent? Coinsurance is always one of those details and policies that has to be addressed and basically has to be understood. Many builders' risk forms are written, particularly on a particular project, on a 100% completed value coinsurance provision. That, in my estimation, has some inherent potential difficulties to overcome. Not too many projects end up with the same completed value uh, as they begin. There are these things called change orders that take place during the construction project that may drive up the cost. And if you think about what's going on in today's marketplace, if we have a project that takes two years, the material costs in the second year could be substantially higher than the material costs in the first year. So how the policy addresses coinsurance and what sort of uh, potential built-ins there might be are, are very significant. Uh, I was just talking with an agent, uh, I think last week or the week before, where they were saying that the builder's risk insurer was willing to build in some potential increase in cost coverage just due to increases in material prices. Kathy, is, have you seen that yet? I see a lot of that, Alan. A lot of carriers are offering, normally it's an endorsement in my experience, where we will increase the amount of coverage available by a certain percentage to account for either change orders or costs of labor and material increases. Sometimes this will help on the coinsurance side and the limit side, sometimes just on the limit side. But one thing that I have found in the builder's risk world is many carriers are willing to waive coinsurance. In the underwriting process, we've got the construction budget. So normally the concern with coinsurance is making sure that the insured is insuring to value. If we've got the construction budget, it gives the underwriter some comfort that we are at least in the right neighborhood. So very often I suggest to an agent, ask the underwriter, can we get rid of the coinsurance? Very often the answer is sure. And that's just a better situation for everyone. So because we're talking about an inland marine form, my thought process is we're from a peril standpoint, this is most likely an open perils policy. So really what determines perils really is the exclusion. So what are some of the exclusions that you two have seen that can be problematic when you write builder's risk, Kathy? 
so many exclusions. And I, I laugh a little whenever I look at the AIA contract that asks for all risks coverage. And we've all been told for years now, stop saying that. And so many agents will look at that and assume, oh, they, that must mean special form. And then when we look and we see what's actually required and compare that to some of the problematic exclusions, we find all kinds of issues. The water exclusion, not just flood, all kinds of water, including things like water intrusion, sewer and drain backup, commonly excluded. Earth movement, and again, that's not just earthquake, that's any kind of soil conditions, moving of the earth, ordinance or law, mechanical breakdown. A lot of forms still have testing exclusions, some just for hot testing or performance testing, some still for operational testing or building startup testing. And those are problematic exclusions because that's when a loss is likely to occur. And I think sometimes, Jay, we have to look at the potential interplay of exclusions. Uh, I could take an exclusion uh, as like mechanical breakdown. Uh, is it an absolute mechanical breakdown exclusion? Do I get some resulting damage coverage? Do I get all resulting damage not otherwise excluded or limited? Kathy was mentioning the testing exclusion. Uh, we, if we're going to address the testing exclusion, there are other exclusions in the policy that may be interconnected with that. Because one of the things that may happen during performance testing is mechanical breakdown. Well, so they gave us testing coverage, but did they modify the mechanical breakdown exclusion so that it doesn't apply during the testing process? And, and I think that's the difficulty that we have with looking at, I think this false sense of security is that open perils means everything's covered uh, except excluded or limited. Well, that might be what the policy form says, but then what's the interplay of the exclusions? And have you thought through that particular process? Because there are all sorts of things that can happen during this construction process. They're much more susceptible. But you know, we, we look at the AIA document and it says that you got to have specific coverage for theft of all the materials. Okay. Now, when I read that, I think that means that if the contractor's employees stole the materials, that's a theft. I don't think we're going to see a, a builder's risk, even the commercial inland marine builder's risk, that's going to cover employee theft. Would you agree with that, Kathy? I agree. And most project owners, for example, if you suggest employee theft coverage, of course, we'd have to modify the definition of employee significantly there. If you even suggest such a coverage, they are not normally willing to consider it. I've seen a few lenders require it, which I actually appreciate. But these are the kinds of issues that come up, as you mentioned. And I think, too, in the inland marine world, we're dealing with language that is a little unfamiliar at times. Most of us know what the special form says. We know what those exclusions mean, or at least we think we know what they mean. When we get into the inland marine world, things are worded a little bit differently, and things work together a little bit differently. So I know that, like every policy, 
there are endorsements that we can add and obviously soft costs is one of those endorsements what are some of the other endorsements that you think are important in builders risk coverage alan well before we even get to endorsements jay i'd like to cover two other areas that i think are most important one is making sure all the covered property is covered correctly oftentimes i see builders risks confined in the description of covered property to building or structure located at, and I think that's a difficult problem. I don't see the named insured constructed correctly, and actually the words any subcontractor of any tier, in my opinion, should appear on many builders' risks in order to comply with contract requirements. And then the period of time for which the builder's risk is written is often not thought through very well. I can't tell you how many builder's risk policies I see that are written on an annual basis when going in, everybody knows it's going to be a 30-month project, a 60-month project. And boy, the potential pitfalls of not recognizing that potential exposure and perhaps even an E&O exposure, because what's going to happen if you have losses early on in the builder's risk and that first annual period, the underwriter decides to non-renew and now you're out searching for builder's risk coverage on a partially completed project that has been non-renewed for losses. So, you know, there are endorsements that are important, but I think even some of the base coverages have to be better understood and who ought to be the named insured and how should we describe the project and how long should we write the coverage. And then when I look at endorsements, I have to look at what the base coverage is willing to provide automatically, or am I going to have to put back some endorsements for resulting damage? We, we typically see exclusions for faulty design. Is it going to cover resultant damage? We see uh, exclusions for faulty workmanship. Is it going to cover resulting damage? Am I going to have to add that by endorsement? Kathy already mentioned testing. Is it excluded or do I have the coverage built in or do I have to add an endorsement to add back that particular peril? And, and so I, I use my endorsements to be, better tailor not only the perils, but covered property and making sure we have the, the correct insureds. I'm sure you do the same thing, Kathy. Absolutely. And I think your original point was an important one. We are starting at a different place with many of the forms that we're looking at. So in one form, ordinance or law is one of the coverages that I think is so important to include on a builder's risk. And so often this gets forgotten. The assumption is, I'm building a brand new building. Of course, I'm in compliance with code. I don't need ordinance or law. Forgetting that being up to code is just a very small part of ordinance or law coverage. We've got a couple of other coverages that come into play, like coverage for damage to the undamaged portion of a building that the town just told me I have to knock down because my building was too significantly damaged. Some forms may include that. With some forms, I'll need an endorsement. If I have a solid understanding of my base form, I'll have a better idea of what I need to do to it. So 
Are there any other considerations that agents should keep in mind when they're writing builder's risk and that you can think of? <laughs> loaded question. <laughs> yeah, what what a loaded question that is when you talk about other considerations. Uh, I, I will tell you one of the things that I, I will look at a, a consideration in writing a builder's risk. First of all, I'm going to want to know who's going to provide the builder's risk. And if I'm a subcontractor, if I'm the agent on that project and I'm handling a subcontractor, one of the areas I'm going to want to ask my contractor, even though my contractor says uh, the owner is going to provide the builder's risk, the general contractor is going to provide the builder's risk, I'm going to want to know what's the deductible and who's responsible for the deductible. So even if my subcontractor gets along into this false sense of security, as I call it, that the owner or the general contractor is looking out for their needs, uh, they may still impose that deductible on the subcontractor if that subcontractor is the one responsible uh, for the damage. And if that's a $100,000 deductible on the builder's risk, is the subcontractor capable of absorbing uh, that $100,000 deductible to meet their obligation? Or do we need to provide another policy called a deductible buy-down? And, and so there are lots of considerations to make sure we understand how it's put together, who's providing the coverage, what coverage is there. And even, I, I will tell you, on my contractors, my, my general contractors, where the owner might be providing the coverage, we would have a, a what we would call a wraparound endorsement, where our contractor's builder's risk would wrap around the owner's builder's risk to do something like a difference in conditions policy might do. And so there are a lot of variants in writing coverage for the particular exposure. Kathy, what's, what's your take on this? One of my biggest areas of concern is that our insureds often don't understand when coverage begins and ends. Now, renovation projects are a particular problem, for example, and some builder's risk carriers will agree to provide coverage for the existing structure, some will not. Even assuming that a carrier has agreed to provide coverage for that existing structure, does coverage begin on day one of the policy? Depending on the language in the policy, it may not. If we only have coverage while the building or structure is in the course of construction, fabrication, erection, we may not have coverage. So we need to understand the timeline of that project. We've got a vacant building exposure. Is the builder's risk going to take care of that? And then on the other end of the policy, when does coverage end? If I sell a policy to my insured, and Alan, I could not agree with you more about your comment of writing an annual policy for a project that is much longer. That just can go wrong in so many different ways. If I have a two-year policy in effect, though, my client thinks he's got coverage for two years, not realizing that a number of things could happen to stop coverage prior to the end of that two-year period. Occupancy, completion, all types of things can be coverage-ending triggers. So I think we really need to make sure that we're communicating well and understanding all of these nuances in our builder's risk form so that our clients know what they've got coverage for and what they don't. 
And I got to tell you, I don't think I've seen a, a commercial Ellen Marine builder's wrist that I didn't think needed to be modified in the area of debris removal. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, they, they seem to be far too limited in providing the potentially needed coverage in that area. I would agree with you. In fact, for me, debris removal is a hot button issue on most property policies and most inland marine policies where it just is inadequate. And in my experience, many inland marine underwriters, if asked to provide additional coverage in the area of debris removal, are happy to do it, often at no additional cost. So I'm at least going to ask those questions. Can we do something to make this coverage better for the client? Very often the answer is yes. And in the area of collapse, many of the many of the forms define collapse differently. And I get very concerned when the contract requires full collapse coverage and the even the commercial inland marine builder's risk form has what I would call limited collapse coverage, does not address structural integrity as might come up on a particular project and requires an abrupt falling down in order to trigger coverage. Any success, Kathy, in addressing that particular issue? I struggle with that one, Alan. I find that most of the collapse coverage in many of the forms that I look at is even a little bit more limited than what we see on a special form cause of loss on a property policy. We've got named perils there. It's difficult to get that broadened. It's worth trying, though. So, Jay, you're asking us to say, are there any pitfalls? And my answer would be, I think there's a pitfall in all of the areas. And regardless of how good the policy is, I think you have to think through loss scenarios. And sometimes that just comes with experience. That's one of my arguments about the contractor being responsible for the builder's risk rather than the owner is that if this is a first-time project for an owner, they probably haven't stubbed their toe and know what to really look for in coverage. Whereas if we have a general contractor that's been building buildings for 25 years, they've probably run into a few from experience that have learned that coverage wasn't as broad as I would have liked. And I, I think you know we can all say that, you know, agree that that most people, most insureds, think they have more coverage than they really have. So as we begin to finish out our time on this particular episode, I would like to do one other thing. And, and I know that there are other property coverages that agents should be aware of that are needed when we're dealing with contractor risk. Could you each just throw in a couple of different coverages that you think are important in, in that process and, and maybe give our listeners a, um, an understanding of what those policies do? Well, Jay, I, I got to tell you that I think, personal opinion, many contractors' equipment forms do not meet the typical contractor exposures uh, on any project there's going to be equipment interchange. And many of the forms that I have read, even though they are great commercial and the marine forms, don't properly address uh, borrowed equipment and, and or property that might be loaned to others. 
because under property not covered, I commonly see an exclusion. I also think that we have to be careful about uh, rented equipment and how that's best addressed. Even valuation um, and and, and uh, how are we going to handle those particular areas? Uh, I know perhaps one of uh, Kathy's hot buttons might be installation floaters. So I'll let her talk a little bit about the installation floater. It is one of my hot buttons. We have a lot of contractors who are trade contractors who are working on projects that are not covered under builder's risk, or perhaps the interest of the trade contractor is not properly taken care of on builder's risk. I see a lot of contracts where my trade contractor is responsible for insuring the materials until they get to the job site and while they are in transit, while they are in temporary storage. So making sure we understand those installation floater exposures and how to properly cover those. What I see a lot of is a reliance on enhancement endorsements to a property policy. And in my experience, the coverage that I'm going to get under an installation floater, a standalone inland marine form, is so much broader. And I'm seeing now many more bells and whistles added to some installation floaters, including things like soft costs, temporary works. So making sure we really understand our contractor's exposure so that we can structure that installation floater properly, so important. Well, Kathy and Alan, I usually at this point thank you for our time together for this particular episode. But since this is the last episode, I would like to thank you for all of our time together over the last four episodes. And so, and I always appreciate the two of you uh, getting together with me and we talk about insurance coverage and insurance nerd minds are just going crazy right now because we always think about coverage. And I'm very thankful for that. And, and I really hope that those of you that have been listening have really been able to uh, to glean some excellent information. If you have not listened to the other three episodes in this series, I highly suggest that you do. And I want you to understand that this is just a small sample of the information that you will get if you attend the Contractor Pro Focus event that is taking place in a webinar format on December 16th and 17th. And if you have not registered for that, and by the way, you don't have to be uh, a CIC or a dues-paying member of the National Alliance. This is available to everyone. Our Pro Focus series is available to everyone. You just go to our website and register for the event, and, and you will get so much more information from Kathy and Alan during that time period. So we look forward to you being on that event and learning more. And Kathy and Alan, again, thank you so much for everything that you've put together for us over this time period. Thank you, Jay. Well, Jay, thank you. It's been my pleasure to be with you. I am very pleased to be able to present this Pro Focus with Kathy, who I really consider one of the true, true professional technicians in this business that deals with this every day. I'm just an old guy trying to learn the business. And so I appreciate when folks like Kathy are willing to share their information. Thank you so much for that, Alan. I am beyond excited to be working with you on this program. And 
we are all learning from each other every day. And the things that we get to share in these programs just really excite me. I'm looking forward to December. I hope you'll all join us. Thank you all. And we'll see you in December. That's it for our contractor series. To learn more about the Contractors Pro Focus Program or to listen to our other podcasts, head over to our website at www.scic.com. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Nat Alliance Now podcast.